Hello and welcome to Hear and Know, a new podcast presented by Hill and Knowlton Strategies, a global communications agency with a simple goal to drive growth, build reputation and protect against risk. And welcome to this, our first mini-series, Should Robots Own Rights, where I'm going to be talking about artificial intelligence and intellectual property. My name is Emma Pike. I work with Hill & Knowlton helping clients to navigate new laws and policies emerging from the European Union and shaping the digital world we live in. And having previously been a copyright lawyer and worked for many years in the music industry, I'm interested in how technology changes how we create things and how copyright and intellectual property is constantly evolving to keep pace with those changes. One technology that is beginning to revolutionize how we create and invent things is artificial intelligence. Already today, one third of Bloomberg's news articles are written by robots. Warner Music, who I'm speaking to shortly, has signed a record deal with an algorithm. And in 2019, the very first patent application was filed that named a robot called Dabus as inventor. So it seems that artificially intelligent machines are becoming quite creative. And yet, as the law stands today, not just in Europe, but all over the world, intellectual property rights are geared to reward human creativity. Things that are created autonomously by machines do not currently attract intellectual property rights. Over the course of the next few episodes, I'm going to be talking to several experts about whether this matters and what the implications are for the people and companies developing creative AI, and also for the governments and policymakers who want to encourage them. Ultimately, I want to explore whether it might be time for an update to intellectual property law to grant rights in creations generated by artificial intelligence. Today in our first episode, I'm going to be focusing on copyright, and I'm delighted to welcome three expert guests. Scott Cohen is Head of Innovation at Warner Music. Hello, Scott. Hello. Eleonora Rosati is a copyright lawyer with Bird and Bird and also writes a blog called IP Cat, which is all about IP and features quite a number of cats. Hello, Eleonora. Hello, Emma. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. And Ted Shapiro is a partner at Wiggins Law Firm in Brussels, also a copyright expert with particular experience in the audiovisual sector. Hello, Ted. Hi, Emma. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. So um, to kick us off, could you just give me your opinion on how creative you think machines really are? And perhaps, Scott, I'm going to start with you. Sure. I mean... It really depends um, how creative they are. A lot of what's being created is a combination of human creation and AI. So it's very hard to tease that out. But what you're finding is that the really talented artists that employ AI have been able to achieve amazing results. The other end of the spectrum is A lot of what's happening with AI, particularly around things like yoga, meditation, relaxation music, I think it's so creative in a way and so good that it probably already passes the Turing test that you don't know that you're listening to AI generated music and you are. I guarantee you everyone listening to this 
has listened to to AI generated music without knowing that they already listened. Ted, um, what about you? What about in your experience uh, working with uh, the film industry and audiovisual sector? How creative do you think AI really is? In the audiovisual sector, it it really can significantly um, contribute to the creation of uh, of content for audiovisual works. We're seeing it used for editing assistance in a range of different ways. Project assessment, help with writing scripts. Also, you know, um, looking further forward, um, box office forecasting. And obviously, it's well known that it helps with special effects and CGI that is included in film um, and, and television shows. I mean, that's been for a while and the, you know, the techniques are getting better and better, but it, it seems very much that it's a tool being used and it's not so much that we're talking about, you know, sort of pure audiovisual works that are being spewed out by some bot, but more an intermediate kind of thing. And Eleonora, I'm gonna ask to get the legal angle on this. How far do you think that the kind of artificial intelligence systems we're seeing, how much do they meet the, the originality criteria for copyright? If uh, the um, state of the art is the one that Scott and Ted have uh, you know, outlined that AI at the moment is a tool, I think that then we don't really need to ask how original the output of that is, because of course everything will be traced back to a human being who will be using AI to develop their own creativity. So in this sense, what the human author does is original and fulfills the legal requirements. Of course, the question becomes problematic to answer in a scenario in which you have AI that creates relaxation music entirely on its own. There is no human involved in this process. And then it is where you know, the problem might lie from a legal standpoint, because of course the current copyright system appears to be premised on a human author, a human type of creativity. We speak about personality to determine what originality means. So all these things, are difficult to be placed in an entirely non-human context and therefore attract legal protection. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we're getting to the real nub of it now, I think, which is this question of really genuinely autonomously created works um, where there is no human really involved. Uh, Scott, I'm going to come back to you because Warner Music was the first, I believe, record company to sign an algorithm to uh, <laughs> a 20-album uh, record deal. That's a lot of albums. I'm not sure you'd find any human creators that were going <laughs> to be producing that kind of output. Yeah, an so, algorithm could do it in like uh, 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, 20 albums, probably the tip of the iceberg in terms of what the algorithm could uh, could produce. But can you just tell us a little bit more about that algorithm and about um, the, is the algorithm really a tool in the hands of some humans, I presume developers who are behind it, does it or does it genuinely create very, very autonomously, in which case this problem potentially of whether an algorithm can own copyrights perhaps becomes pertinent? Yeah, I, th I think, the, you know, for me, the issue is, is that we're making this distinction between 
artificial intelligence and human intelligence. You know, and I think the only thing artificial about AI is the word artificial, that there's just intelligence. The same way that, I don't know if anyone's seen videos of like an elephant that has a paintbrush and paints paintings. That's an intelligence that's creating intellectual property. What, you know, why is that any different if it's a machine or a human or an elephant? And I, and I think that the point is that when something is created, it should generate a copyright to that owner. I mean, to me, it's very clear in that we're, we're, we're putting up these boundaries of who can generate a copyright, you know, and, and maybe if it was, you know, many centuries ago, you know, it, you know, we had different classes of humans <laughs> that the law just said a woman can't do something or this person can't do something like why? <laughs> and so we're putting up these artificial barriers to saying, yes, it's creative, but because it was done by an algorithm, no then you, you can't. And, and to me, that, that's the only thing that feels artificial. But in fact, that's exactly what the law does say at the moment. So Eleonora, is copyright law still fit for purpose in this new environment where we have AI creativity? Uh, if we think about a work created exclusively through AI, so no human involvement, there are three key issues that to me prove how problematic copyright law is in this respect. The first one, which I already mentioned, is authorship. Can a non-human be regarded as an author? And here, you know, I would like to make the example of the US. Uh, there is a compendium of practices of the US Copyright Office, which is very clear in saying that no registration shall be given to works created by animals. So uh, the elephant is out of the picture, uh, machines, uh, works uh, which allegedly have been created by a spirit. So all these things shall not be registered. Even assuming that we can think of a non-human author, the second obstacle is originality, because as I said, it is uh, rooted within an idea of creativity, personality, which to me are all human-related concepts. And then there is the issue of ownership. Who owns the rights to these works? And here I would like you know, to go back to what Scott was saying about you know, this artificial distinction between who is entitled and who is not. Um, because uh, the fundamental question is why we will need legal protection for these types of works. See, uh, certainly, if we move from a continental European standpoint, it is uh, premised on the idea of a natural entitlement of the author as a human. I think that this does not really sit well with uh, uh, granting copyright to non-human beings. And uh, if we look at it from uh, an Anglo-Saxon perspective, that copyright is an incentive uh, to create, then the fundamental question is, who needs this incentive? I don't think that the algorithm will not create if they didn't have copyright in their creations. So perhaps who needs to be incentivized is uh, companies, programmers, etc. This uh, prompts the question whether indeed copyright, which is a such a broad and long right, is the most appropriate type of legal protection if we want to reward investment in this kind of technology. I think that it is something that deserves 
protection, but perhaps uh, through systems other than copyright, uh, which presents a series of challenges. It's funny, you really nailed the point uh, really well. First of all, the, I feel sorry for all the elephants, or the creative elephants in the world, um, because I do believe they, they should have some protection. But, but, you know, the notion is the copyright law in some way fundamentally flawed, that it, that it must have a human intervention, it must um, have a, a, an incentive to create, it must do all those things, because it feels like whether we like it or not, AI-generated music is here to stay. It's not going away. And are you going to reward the people that write the code, the companies behind it, or are they going to do it and get nothing when this is going to be a, a huge um, part of our business? You know, is this something where we should be thinking about these are new revenue streams and we should definitely capture those new revenue streams. Um, there's certainly, you know, if you, if you want to talk about originality, are the, are the machines truly original? You know, I could look to any artist and say, are you truly original? They trained on what came before them. They learn from artists before them. And we have a great system for that already that, you know, as artists borrow from each other, there's permissions and payments and, and royalties, and that already exists. In my mind, I would just expand the, the scope of that to include more things because, as I said, it's not going away. Okay, so I want to come on to a parallel question, which is um, about infringement. So we've talked about you know, whether this kind of creativity should generate rights. Um, we haven't yet talked about what happens when a machine or perhaps an elephant uh, <laughs> infringes um, the copyrights of a, of a human being or another elephant or another machine. <laughs> so where does the balance lie there? So if I'm a policymaker and I want to incentivize all this wonderful artificial intelligence creativity, but at the same time, I don't want to pull the rug out from, uh, from the livelihoods of, of the creative community, the human creative community, I mean. How do we manage that balance? Who has a comment on that? Well, for me, it, it's very simple. It's, it, it's, it's very binary. You have to pay a royalty. You know, if a machine learns on anything, whether it's human, elephant, or another machine, you create an ongoing payment and royalty system. It, and, and again, we, we already have these systems in place to try and create it. And, and I, again, I don't care whether there was ever a human involved or not, if you can trace it back. It's just, it's just the, the natural extension of the existing uh, legal framework and systems we've already built that you would just pay an ongoing royalty. It's, it couldn't be easier. And we shouldn't think about ways of kind of getting around the system because mm -hmm. it, it's, it's unnecessary. Of course, you know, the model that uh, Scott has indicated is one way to look at it. But uh, of course, uh, not everything uh, can be licensed or should be licensed. So in this sense, uh, new EU tax and data mining exceptions, uh, of course, uh, those were introduced uh, to allow investment uh, into uh, big data, machine learning, AI creativity as well. And indeed, for the time being, the question of 
potential infringement is perhaps more sensitive than that of rights subsistence. And it is indeed here that we have seen an influx of legislative activity around the world. No? We have had the first tax and mining exception adopted in Japan. Then there has been this discussion going on in Europe. There have been, before that, national initiatives in Europe itself, the UK, Germany, France, Estonia, uh, they were all thinking about how we can incentivize this, uh, this without having a risk of liability on the side of those who make these investments. And in the US, there has been no legislative initiative as such, of which I am aware, but there is a case law that provides some guidance as to when unlicensed mining activities can be undertaken. Uh, so I think that uh, the question of rights subsistence, I mean, is this stuff protected or not, should be preceded by the question, uh, is this something that has created potentially something that attracts infringement and liability? And the liability is on whom? The machine, the programmer, because, uh, of course, uh, copyright subsistence is the other face of the coin where there is also infringement to be taken into account. Uh, so far, you know, the discussion has focused a lot on entitlement. I own the rights, I want to exploit it, but there is also the risk that you might be liable along the process. Ultimately, somebody is responsible for the, the machine um, that uh, did the text and data mining. Somebody fed the beast. And, the, the, and I guess my point holds to this too. The current system can deal with that. The new exceptions that were adopted at the EU level and the national examples that preceded it in the EU that will now probably have to be tinkered with a little bit as member states implement these um, two, new, the two new exceptions in the, in the directive, they are subject to the international framework um, that sets limits on the scope uh, exceptions, the so-called three-step test. And, and so obviously the the, the new EU exceptions will, will be held up against that standard. Um, the first exception is, is around um, doing text and data mining for research. And the second one is a much, much broader, potentially an exception that covers everything, except for that you can, that the copyright owner can opt out and say that, no, I want to license this stuff. So they are trying to come up with this balance that goes to the points made by both Scott and, and Eleonora that if you think you have something that should be attracting royalties, well, you may be able to get those royalties. Um, on the other hand, for the for big data companies, the companies that lobbied for this um, text and data mining on steroids exception, uh, there is an opportunity to not have to like get an approval from every single person that had ever put anything on the internet um, because it would be very, very onerous, and that, and that, and you know whether or not it's correct in the international system that you have to step forward and assert that you want this to be protected against text and data mining. Well, the new exception um, says that you do, uh, and you know we'll have to see how that plays out. We we don't have a huge amount of experience yet. Uh, as these are all relatively new things. And of course, the new EU level exception um, still has to be implemented across the member states. And we have only a, a couple of national examples that, uh, again, that Eleanor referred to before.
Great. So, I mean, of course, before you can assert your copyright, you have to actually know that your, your work has been used. Um, and so is there a question also about how transparent or opaque um, AI systems are when they are using data that they have gathered from lots and lots of different sources? Yeah, this is, this is challenging because we also, you know, in the future, with AI music, we also have to think of the music itself as different. We're not talking about a single recording like a Beatles song, um, because I think what we're gonna see a lot of is generative music that is used once and only once, but on a scale we've never seen. So for instance, you could imagine it in gaming or fitness that the person playing the game or working out is getting music that is created in real time just for them in this moment so that it either matches their heartbeat or changes so their heartbeat goes up or changes their mood or anything you could imagine. And it just happens and it's gone. <laughs> and it's never captured anywhere. Um, this is a, a massive challenge, which is, which is why I'm suggesting using the initial framework of create a, a royalty system that is happening. In your scenario, who pays the royalty? Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so the, the people creating the music versus the end user listening to it. Or is there an intermediary we can hit up for it? Yeah, I have no, yeah, these are the challenges. I guess what I'm saying is when it's already challenging when we're thinking about an individual composition that's then recorded, this is a whole nother world and we need to expand our thinking around what will it actually look like um, in the future. So when I get back from the gym and I tell my friends, oh, I was listening to this great song at the, uh, at the gym. Have you ever heard it? The answer will obviously be no. A hundred percent will be no. <laughs> and, and nor will you ever be able to go back and hear it again. Well, I think uh, this, this sounds to me like um, the, the, that conceptually and in principle, this idea that there should be um, uh, simply ro a, a complex royalty system that uh, identifies whose work has been used in some way in the creation of this highly personalized musical experience while you're on the treadmill. <laughs> so this seems conceptually to be absolutely right. In practice, very, very difficult to actually achieve. Uh, and I think maybe we could finish the, the, uh, the session by wondering whether artificial intelligence itself could actually help us in the process of creating this much more complex, much more nuanced royalty. Uh, I mean, in the intermediate stage, you know, maybe not for, for Scott's paradigm, but in the intermediary stage, there are, tech, there are a lot of technologies that are out there, including ones that use AI uh, to administer rights. And there, of course, there are companies out there that are, you know, that are scanning the internet to find out, um, you know, what music is in a mashup um, and to, you know, and to do melody matching. There are, there are things out there that can help um, human authors know when their stuff has been used in AI or otherwise um, and, and help them uh, get paid. Uh, you know, it gets, it, it's going to get more and more complicated, you know, before we get to where Scott um, is, of course, we, you know, we can have, um, you know, what, what happens when someone creates something of, you know, Ariana Grande singing a dead Kennedy song. Um, 
uh, but it was neither of them were involved. Uh, you know, should be identifiable, but could get could get more and more difficult down the line. And I would add, you know, you can, I can also envision the the reverse situation of what we're talking about. We're talking about AI learning from humans and going backwards. But what if there is truly an AI track, and then it goes up into in today's world the TikTok environment. And then a human interacts with it and creates new IP using this AI generated music. So if you create, if you were the owner of this algorithm or this business that created this, wouldn't you want some sort of copyright protection? Wouldn't you want a royalty system? Because we always think of it as the machine learns from the human, but what if the, or takes from the human, what if it's the other way around? The human takes from the machine. Yeah, so many questions, so many questions. Um, Eleonora, final word from you on royalties and AI? My final words uh, would uh, build on what Ted was mentioning, that indeed the AI can be used to detect when one's own work has been used. It can be used in enforcement initiatives, for instance, if we look again at this recent copyright directive, uh, Article 17, which is about uh, liability of online uh, platforms uh, which make available uh, copyright content uploaded by users, uh, there is the possibility that uh, you are able to fulfill your obligations if you implement filtering systems, uh, which uh, by default, uh, I guess, uh, in the near future will be using AI, but here the the question becomes that indeed the AI, in order to be able to detect whether your music has been used, will need to be trained on your content, other people's content, otherwise it will not be able to find the match. So for instance, uh, an AI will need to determine whether something is a parody or is not, but how can the machine know what a parody is if it has not been trained on copyright content and has learned to discriminate between parodies and non-parodies? So, at the end of the day, my, uh, my final thought will be that when we think about AI creativity, the questions of infringement, making content available for these purposes is something that is part of the same system. And uh, it is important not to lose track that indeed we are speaking about sectors which are very closely communicating with each other. And uh, it is therefore necessary to have this broader perspective in mind also when we think about policies around legal rights, liabilities, etc. Excellent. Well, thank you all very, very much. That has been an absolutely fascinating discussion and, um, and raises so many very, very interesting questions. I think I'm just imagining a world where we have humans and machines and elephants and everybody is <laughs> borrowing and stealing from everybody else's creativity. And what we really need is a fantastically AI-driven royalty system that is going to compensate all the people for and elephants and machines for their their input so there we go there's the dream there's the vision thank you all so much bye bye everyone bye bye thank you thanks for listening join me next time when i'm going to be talking to more expert guests about whether robots should own rights